Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to the Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. Newcastle Library's Heritage Collection contains more than 440,000 items in various formats from mayoral portraits and snowballs plate glass negatives to the original Menzies Declaration and the Creer and Berkeley Archive of Subdivision Maps. A wide range of Newcastle's stories are presented in the Library's Heritage Collection. Join us as we explore one piece from the Library's fascinating Rare Book Room. Welcome to our Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. I am Kerry Shaw, Heritage Collections Digitization Specialist at Newcastle Libraries. In this episode of Treasures from the Rare Book Room, we are continuing to explore the complex world of botany and orchids. Claire Presser, our Digital Library Activation Specialist, has spoken to a few more botanists and a librarian to find out why Australian orchids are so special. Lachlan Copeland, Senior Botanist at Ecological Australia and author, as well as Doug Beckers, Conservation Planner from New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife, joined Sally Stewart and Peter Weston in discussing orchid pollination, Charles Darwin, and R.D. Fitzgerald's Australian Orchids, a collection that forms part of Newcastle Library's treasures. Lachlan Copeland, I'm a senior botanist at Ecological Australia, a company based all throughout Australia. I've been into orchids for probably close on 30 years now. Just happened to stumble across a orchid book by David Jones in a bookshop when I was like first or second year of uni and bought it on a whim and read it and became interested and I've been sort of pretty hooked on them almost ever since. So I work on a number of plant species, not just orchids and rare and threatened species in particular is what I specialise in, but probably about a third of my time is spent surveying and writing about threatened orchids, which is what I'm really passionate about. The majority of the world's orchids are sort of in the tropics, which, you know, wet human environments and high rainfall and lots of rainforests. So probably most of the world's orchids, I think, are in epiphytes, which grow in trees or lithophytes grow in rocks. And in the northern parts of Australia, the most common and diverse orchids are epiphytes. But in southern Australia, it's the other way around. Most of them are terrestrial orchids or ground orchids so they're literally rooted in the ground in the soil and most of them sort of have tubers which as you know if you're growing orchids they sort of regenerate each year from a pot and they have a bit of a a dormant phase where they sort of die off totally above the ground usually in summer to avoid the extremes of the Aussie weather so in southern Australia there's definitely a, a really strong speciation of ground orchids or terrestrial orchids but as you move further north into the tropics they become fewer and fewer and then the epiphytes take over and Epiphytes are often easy to grow and, you know, if you can go into any Bunnings or any local nursery and you can buy an an orchid in a pot and it's invariably a a foreign, big flowered, easy to grow epiphytic orchid. But I'm not terribly interested in those personally. I'm much more into our ground orchids and even tiny little midge orchids and onion orchids, microtis, um, you know, 
really, really small is totally fine by me. <laughs> what actually makes an orchid, seeing as there are, so terrestrials, they're essentially like a potato-like tuber in the ground, right? Mm, yep. Bit of a starchy, you know, a good bush tucker for Australian Aborigines years ago. High in carbohydrate, just like a potato, but on a smaller scale. So in terms of what is an orchid, it's any plant in the orchidaceae family, which is the world's biggest family of flowering plants, about 25,000 to 30,000 species. Still poorly known, so you can't get even close to pinpointing a an accurate number on them, but they share a lot of things in common. You can look at an orchid and most of them have a highly modified petal called a labellum or lip. So that's why you can show an orchid to, you know, most people that have no interest in plants or botany at all, they can sort of say, oh, that's an orchid. And their eyes are sort of drawn to that labellum, which is highly modified and often really colourful and intricate or covered in hairs or trichomes or all sorts of funky stuff. So most orchids are readily recognisable by that labellum, but they also have distinctive fruit, which sort of split open and have really, really fine dust-like seed, like incredibly fine seed that's wind dispersed. And, and then botanically, they have their male and female bits sort of fused into a common structure called a column. So there's a number of things sort of botanically, which, you know, place them in the orchidaceae, but ultimately you can sort of look at them and you sort of, you just know they're an orchid and they sort of often have a sort of a shiny leaf and a sort of a semi-succulent sort of feel to them. Most Aussie terrestrial orchids are identifiable as orchids, even by people with you know very limited botanical skills or interest. I'm Doug Beckers, and I'm a conservation planner with National Parks and Wildlife Service. My area of responsibility goes from the Hawkesbury River all the way up to the Manning River and inland to include Barrington Tops, and I certainly cover basically all of the hunter as such. In the case of orchids, Sometimes there is a specific type of insect that only pollinates one particular type of orchid. And what can happen is the insect is lured to the orchid and tries to mate with the orchid, believe it or not. And the orchid then deposits a pollen sac onto the back of these insects. And then the insect flies and goes and visits another orchid and deposits the pollen sac into another orchid. There are even more ridiculous actual stories, uh, real stories about orchid pollination than that. You're listening to Peter Weston from the National Herbarium of New South Wales. Australia is the world centre for sexual kinkiness in orchids at this stage. So at least six different lineages of Australian orchids have independently evolved sexual deception. Pseudo-copulation, which means false copulation or false sex. As a pollination syndrome. There are uh, several groups that are independently evolved systems where they exploit male wasps that pollinate the flowers. And, you know, for the same reason, the male wasps think they've found a female wasp, but actually they've found an orchid flower. I think in all of these groups of insects, you know, they're all the kinds of insects in which the eggs hatch into larvae and the larvae pupate and then the the adults emerge from a pupa. You know, I think in all of these groups of insects that that are exploited this way by orchids, the males emerge from their pupae a week or two before the females. So the environment is full of all of these randy male wasps or flies looking for females, but there aren't any. And then there's these blow-up dollies, which are the orchid flowers that they practice on before the females come out. So, you know, you've got all these these male wasps and flies that wouldn't know a a female wasp or fly if it stood up and bit them, but they can smell them. Yeah, <laughs> so they're out looking for females, and all they're finding is orchid flowers for for a week or two before the real females turn up. 
Evolution is wild. Orchids have really interesting ecology. They're very dependent on other kinds of organisms. So all orchids produce tiny seeds. Which gets wind dispersed and blown around and can colonise new areas. Just to maybe explain to people how fine this seed is and how far it can blow, I think that there's a particular type of thalamitra that's Australian, but it's blown all the way over to New Zealand and grows <laughs> there. Yeah, well, the <laughs> predominant winds are sort of from west to east, so New Zealand's got a lot of orchids which have, they can think us for, basically. They've kind of evolved in Australia. And then their, their seed is incredibly fine. It's like dust-like. So you think of a dust storm and you've got all these fine particles up a kilometre in the air blowing around for, you know, hundreds of kilometres. And orchid seeds can do that. Uh, they're so light and there's literally literally a thousand or so tiny seeds or even more in a typical capsule of a thelometra sun orchid. So, yeah, they can get blown around and disperse. Of course, only a tiny, tiny proportion of those things will actually successfully germinate. They can't actually germinate and grow into an adult plant without the assistance of a kind of fungus. All orchids, when they're seeds, to get anywhere, they have to parasitize a special fungus, not any fungus. It can be one or more species of fungi that that particular orchid species is able to parasitize. So what, what happens is, you know, the orchid seeds, let's say they, they land on the soil if you're a ground orchid or they land on the branch of a tree if you're a tree orchid or on a rock if you're a rock orchid. And unless the fungal threads of a particular fungus invade that seed, they won't get anywhere. And the fungal threads, the hyphae of the fungi, are exploring their environment, searching for resources, for nutrients and water and what have you. When the right fungal thread invades the orchid seed, if it could think it would get a shock because it gets eaten by the orchid seed. So the, the orchid parasitizes the fungus, gets nutrients from the fungus, and that's how it grows, at least as a tiny seedling. A lot of orchids get to a point where they're capable of living on their own without the fungus. They develop chlorophyll, you know, the green pigment in their leaves, which allows them to photosynthesize, and they can feed themselves from that point on. But there are some orchids, quite a lot of orchids, that never lose their dependency on their mycorrhizal fungus. And they have to have that fungus invading their tissues throughout their lives in order to survive and thrive and to reproduce. So the relationships between orchids and their fungi is, is very important. If their fungi go extinct, then so do they. So just that really fine seeds in regard to terrestrial orchids, because that's not the only way that they duplicate. I'm trying to think of the proper word because the, yeah. the tubers themselves, like potatoes, put off shoots and grow another tuber as well as having the seeds, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. A lot of the terrestrials, you can grow in pots. They do, you know, uh, reproduce annually with producing what they call the new daughter tuber. So the older plant sort of dies off, but attached to it under the bottom is the daughter tuber, which will grow a genetically identical plant the following season. And some of our um, bird orchids and greenhoods and helmet orchids and things and acianthus, they'll replicate remarkably well, more than one daughter tuber per plant. So in no time at all, your one plant will turn into you know, 10 or 20 plants in a pot. So that's sort of what we call asexual reproduction. They're producing identical clones. This is Sally Stewart. 
librarian at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria. Fitzgerald, his love for orchids was that he had read Darwin's earlier publication about how orchids are fertilised. Darwin was trying to work out that problem and whether they were cross-fertilised with insects or whether they were self-fertilised. And I think Fitzgerald got wholeheartedly involved in that quest. And you can see in his books, Australian Orchids, he describes and shows in detail how each insect pollinates each plant that he draws, which is pretty um, amazing degree of detail to go to. Orchids tend to have very, very specific relationships with their pollinators. Those orchids will go extinct if their insect pollinators go extinct because there's such a specialised relationship between them. And Fitzgerald described the morphology of pollination of a number of these orchids. For instance, he wrote to Charles Darwin back in in England about the pollination of uh, a greenhorn orchid called Pterostylus longifolia. It's a really interesting little flower, this thing, and and it's a common plant in bushland around Sydney and Newcastle. But the flowers are shaped like a box with a hinge, And the hinge is actually one of the petals of the flower, the labellum. And that labellum is, in botanical terminology, is irritable, which means it can move. If you trigger the labellum on the flower of Pterostylus longifolia, it flips up into the box, which is most of the rest of the flower. It moves so quickly you can't see it move. But when you trigger it, it's pointing downwards, and then... It just flips up and you can't, honestly, you can't see it move. It's so quick. Fitzgerald noticed this and he described it in his treatment of that orchid species in his book. I'm pretty sure he also wrote to Darwin about it, but they had some correspondence. Yes, he did. I haven't read any of the correspondence, but I know he did send his first part of the, of the first volume to Darwin and he probably kept sending the parts on to him. Darwin responded effusively and thought it was an amazing publication. He couldn't quite believe that something so professional and informative had come out of Sydney, Australia. That would have made him thrilled, I'm sure. I mean, Darwin had been to Australia, I think, back in the, was it the 1830s? He arrived at Sydney. I think Darwin ventured into the Blue Mountains area, but they never crossed paths. Darwin, the first book that he wrote or that he published after The Origin of Species, his, his magnum opus about evolution, was on orchid pollination. And that was published in 1862. And then he published a second edition in 1877, and by which time he'd seen the first two parts of Fitzgerald's Orchids of Australia, or Australian Orchids, I should say. Darwin was fascinated by Fitzgerald's descriptions of, of some of these Australian orchids, this one, Pterostyrus longifolia, with these you know, box-trapped flowers, really fascinated him. And Fitzgerald also described how insects could get imprisoned in this box. So he, he put a, a little beetle on the labellum of a plant of Pterostyrus longifolia that he had collected in the wild and was cultivating. It got flipped up into the inside of this box. And the only way out of that prison is through a passage that takes the insect first past the stigma, which is the female receptive part of the flower, and then past the anther, which is the male part of the flower. So 
an insect that is caught by that very quickly moving labellum and thrown into the box, if it already had pollen on it from a previous flower, on its way out, as it crawls out through this tunnel out of this box, it would leave the pollen on the stigma, so pollinating that flower, and on the way out, it would pick up a new bunch of pollen that they would then take to the next flower they visited and and cross-pollinate that. Neither Fitzgerald nor Darwin knew at the time about that particular species is that the labellum mimics a female fly and the and the only insects that really visit that flower in the wild are male flies that are looking for those females. Now, the reason that they mistake that labellum for a female is because the labellum uh, exudes a pheromone, a chemical that the insects can smell, and male insects find females by following these scent trails of these pheromones that are released by the females. And in this case, also by this species of orchid, and the males follow those scent trails to the orchid. They think they've found a female, they attempt to mate with her, and they just get thrown into this box, into this little prison. And then the only way out is is a route that, that makes them pollinate the flower. He was not only interested in orchids, he was interested in all sorts of plants. And he had a set of the Flora Australiensis, which Bentham and Mueller had worked on together. And any time he saw a plant when he was out and about that he didn't think matched a description in the flora, he would send a specimen to Mueller and say, oh, I think we've found something here. I don't recognise it in the flora. Is it perhaps something new? And, of course, Mueller loved this. That's what he lived for finding new plants. So, yes, he would send specimens to Mueller. And a lot of the letters that we have in our Mueller correspondence database at the National Herbarium are letters that have been found amongst the collections with the specimens that Fitzgerald sent to Mueller. How did they meet? I'm not sure that they ever met in person. It's been put forward by Penny Olsen. She wrote a a lovely book about Fitzgerald called A Botanical Life. And she thought that it was the Reverend William Wools, who was also a botanist, a well-known and well-regarded botanist and educator based in Sydney. And he was a member of Sydney Horticultural Society, where Fitzgerald was also a member. And she supposed that perhaps William Wools introduced him to Mueller, but I haven't seen hard evidence of that. It, It may be true or it may not be. Our earliest piece of correspondence that we have from Fitzgerald to Mueller is probably 1871, I think, with the content of that letter that indicates that they'd been in quite a lot of conversation before that because they were talking about items that Mueller had promised to send to Fitzgerald and Fitzgerald was wishing that he could send his illustrations to Mueller but was worried they'd get lost in the mail. So they knew each other at least in letter, quite well by the early 1870s. I wouldn't be surprised if Fitzgerald simply introduced himself to Mueller or if Mueller got in contact with Fitzgerald once he learned that he was going to places like Lord Howe Island or out into the field in New South Wales. He would have been very curious and interested to obtain specimens from anyone going anywhere. So he may have reached out to Fitzgerald himself. The book itself, you said that Darwin thought that it was an amazing book and it was an awarded a gold medal at the Paris Exhibition of 1878. Yeah, he was receiving awards all over the place. 
he was like he first started submitting his drawings to competitions locally, like, like the Horticultural Society, and then gradually submitted to more and more international exhibitions and intercolonial exhibitions. There was the Melbourne exhibition, Paris exhibition. Yes, he won awards of different degrees at all of them. So, yeah, he was very well-renowned and very successful, very popular, which he deserves to be because it was quite a remarkable publication. So why was the publication so remarkable? I think it hit a chord because it was so beautifully illustrated, so detailed as well. Like there are so many cross-sections for people who haven't seen it you can look it up online and have a, a look at sort of detail that we're talking about here. I haven't seen illustrations like this where there are so many cross-sections of the parts of the plant that are required for identification or the parts, particularly with the orchids of the flower, that might show where the insect will sit or um, what the pollen grains look like or the stamen and anthers and different parts like that. The language used is very easy to read. At that time, the trend or the requirement really, if you're going to describe plants, is for the description to be in Latin. Fitzgerald didn't write in Latin. His prose was plain English. Um, Technical though, you still had to understand technical terminology about plant anatomy. I read them and I don't know necessarily what he's talking about. But he was able to describe the plant's in a way that a layperson could understand. And he talked about when they flowered and where they grew. It was all really useful information for people who at the time might have been out exploring the Australian wildlife and wilderness, and they could actually use the book to identify orchids themselves. I think it was just such a, a visually beautiful book and it was a, a big, large-scale production. It was colour. And it was probably quite exciting. So it seems to be sort of like a wonderful cross-section of complexity but accessibility? I think so. It, It was definitely scientifically respected and, you know, it was quite monumental. Maybe Bentham described it as, it's made the Australian orchid species the best known in the world. And I'd say that is largely due to the amazing illustrations that accompany it. Thanks so much for listening to the Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. To access and browse Newcastle Library's collections, please visit our website at newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library. To view our heritage collection, just Google Hunter Photo Bank. The online collection is constantly being added to as items are digitised and loaded, so be sure to visit often. This has been a Newcastle Library's real production. 